And I think it's time that we start the conversation to silence the shame. Silence the shame. Silence the shame. Silence the shame. Silence is the difference between treatment or pain, life or death. Silence the shame. Speak up now and silence. 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 Silence the shame. What's up? What's up, everybody? It's your girl, Shanti Das, the host of the Silence the Shame podcast. Excited to be back for another incredible episode. I am here with our co-host, Free the Vision. What's good, Free? What's going on, Shanti? Oh, I am just out here in these streets trying to do all that I can to make mental health resources and care more accessible to everybody. So just out here on the good grind, but happy to be back for another episode. And I'm really excited about uh, this one. We had, we at Silence of Shame had our second annual My Life is a Gift Suicide Awareness Summit uh, at the Gathering Spot. And this was such a powerful conversation that we felt like, you know what, we got to send this to our listeners worldwide. So we decided to make it a podcast episode. So today's episode is a panel discussion that I moderated featuring recording artist and rapper Mona Leo out of Houston, Texas, and Dr. Shonda, who is an amazing young psychologist and therapist that is out here doing her thing. So Without further ado, I'd love for you guys to check out this powerful conversation around suicide awareness and prevention. Again, welcome to the second annual My Life is a Gift Suicide Awareness Summit. I'm excited to bring two powerful young women to the stage doing great things in their communities. First up, hailing from Missouri City, Texas, Mona Leo came into the rap game Confident and unapologetic, only 20 years of age, Mona Leo has already captivated listeners, fans, and artists worldwide with her 2021 viral track, Beating Down Your Block. An advocate for mental health, Mona Leo faced her struggles with depression and social anxiety. She consistently promotes wellness and finds new ways to connect with her peers on a meaningful level. Well, so welcome to the stage, my new niece, Mona Leo. She calls me Auntie Shanti. <laughs> Next up is another young lady that I feel like is a niece too, and I'm just so proud of her. Dr. Shonda Reynolds is a licensed clinical psychologist, content creator, podcast host, national speaker, and emerging voice in the mental health community. Dr. Shonda obtained her doctorate in clinical psychology after realizing the health disparities within the black church. Dr. Reynolds enjoys working with children, adolescents, young adults, and their families. Please welcome to the stage, Dr. Shonda Reynolds. And we finally call her Dr. Shonda. Okay, everybody should have their microphones. All right, so I'm gonna jump right in and get started. I wanna read um, a blurb and opening statement. According to the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, also known as the CDC, 2020 leading causes of death report, suicide was the 12th leading cause of death in the United States and the 10th leading cause of death in Georgia, claiming the lives of over 45,900 people. Suicide was the second leading cause of death among individuals ages 10 to 14 and 25 to 34, and the third leading cause of death among individuals ages 15 to 24. We know that is a problem, right? And that is why we are here today to address some of these statistics. So I'd like to start with you first, Mona Leo. As a survivor of a suicide attempt, can you share a little bit about your story and the challenges that led to your suicidal ideation? Okay, let me breathe. Yes. So, 
And I got to correct you earlier. You said I was 20. I'm 21. Oh, I'm my bad. Okay. Uh, she is legal now. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's my bad. <laughs> Joking. Um, okay. Um, so I was born in Houston, Texas, born and raised in Houston, Texas. Um, I lived in the home with my mom and my stepdad and my younger siblings. And we were financially challenged, right? Nothing new, nothing new under the sun. That's everybody's story, it seems like. But we just dealt with financial hardships. So um, as a kid, I guess what was important to me at the time was like what I was wearing and like the shoes, the clothes and how my hair was done and stuff like that. Cause I mean, you're a kid and you go to school and you see the kids in there with the new shoes and stuff like that. And um, very early on, I realized like, this is different. Like what I'm wearing and what they're wearing are two totally different things, which was fine until it started to become like a problem amongst the kids. And they would just say little things about my hair and my outfits and stuff like that. And my mom, we would bounce around from school to school. So like every school, I mean, every year we would go to a new school. So I just had to like try to make new friends every school year. And that was very difficult for me. And I realized that very early on, my earliest suicide attempt was in fourth grade. And I tried to, I had a karate belt. It wasn't very practical, but I just knew I was like, I'm over this, I'm tired. I'm tired of being a weird kid, tired of being like sticking out like a sore thumb. So I had the karate belt, I just had a plan and obviously didn't go through, but that's when I realized I started to kind of fall back on that as a um, kind of like an answer to like, if I'm dealing with anything difficult, I know that this is always a way out. And so I became comfortable in that space and just feeling like if I ever become too uncomfortable, I'm just gonna take myself out. So. Fast forward, um, I go to middle school, still the same problem. I'm just having difficulty blending in and just fitting in with the rest of the kids, um, which now I can appreciate as an adult, but then it was like the biggest deal in the world, right? So um, I was in eighth grade and then I just, again, was dealing with being the odd one out and I ended up taking um, uh, 22 ibuprofens. And I got really, really sick and I had to be hospitalized. And then um, I remember the counselor came to talk to me and she was like, um, there are resources for you. And I'm like, resources? Like, what kind of resources? She was like, there is um, this place called the Houston Behavioral Health Care Center that we think you should go to. And I'm like, okay, interesting. So I go there thinking that it's like a, um, an experience that I'm going to be able to enjoy. But um, I get there and... It's just kind of almost like I were like related to prison because I just felt like we it was so it was very like structured. We had to all wear like these scrubs and these, you know, socks and we had scheduled eating, scheduled playtime. It just wasn't it really didn't. I didn't feel like it was the most effective thing for me. And then we were dealing with the issues with the nurses and stuff like that there, which is another problem in and of itself. I know like a lot of the people who I was um in the hospital with, dealt with the same issues, but that's a separate issue. Um, so fast forward, I leave, I'm discharged from that hospital after a couple of weeks. Um, I enter into high school, still dealing with the same problems, like feeling like I don't belong here, feeling like I don't have a purpose, right? Because it was something, I don't know if, maybe it was just my household, but I didn't grow up hearing that I was enough that I was beautiful 
and that even if I am different, that it's okay. Like I just kind of had to deal with that on my own and figure it out. Um, even something I still struggle with as an adult, especially in this industry, just finding where I belong. I feel like we all struggle with that, whatever the career field is. Mm-hmm. We just all struggle with feeling like we belong. So I'm in high school, like just challenged, start dating an older guy. Y'all know how that go. He just taking advantage of me, that whole thing. And it just, again, I was losing myself and I was losing my self-worth and, and my, I didn't have a, um, like a father figure that was a good example for me as of what love should have been, mm. right? And again, I'm not the only one, but I didn't have that example. And so I was chasing after something, I don't know what it was, but I was chasing after this thing and this guy and in just outside exterior things. And I could never figure out why I could not be happy. So just all throughout high school, I started dealing with more experiences. 10th grade, uh, it was the day after my birthday, I drank bleach and I, I threw up, I was throwing up bleach, I had burns in my mouth. Um, my throat, my stomach, everything. It was terrible. It was the most horrific experience I've ever had in my life. But um, something, I don't know what happened that day, but something just kind of like, I think after enough times, like especially in the hospital bed, when you're in that room by yourself, you kind of have to face reality. And it's like, okay, what am I doing? Mm-hmm. Am I going to keep like reverting back to like harming myself or am I going to be proactive and be the change that I want to see in myself Mm -hmm. and so I took up music and it was a hobby at first and I just wanted to like play the piano and sing a little bit and then um it just was something that developed into an undeniable like I'm gifted I'm talented and no one can ever take that away from me I know if I never Mm -hmm. if I never was able to fit into anybody's circle, I knew that nobody can take away my talent. And so I kept building on that, building on that. I graduated high school. I went to college for mortuary science and criminal justice. And while I was in school, I just knew that, again, this isn't where I belong. And so I'm like, okay, let me take my um, talent seriously. So I go to the studio. I record a song. I put the song out. It goes viral. And the rest is history. Amen. Give it up. What a testimony. And thank God that you were able to pour back into yourself, right, and find something that you could, like, latch on to to give you that inspiration. You you really are an inspiration. So thank you again for being here today. Dr. Shonda, between the pandemic losses, mass shootings, community violence, police shootings, incidents of racism, and loss of reproductive rights and anatomy, can you share how these issues, and I'm sorry, autonomy, can you share how these issues may be negatively impacting the mental health of youth and young adults and other risks that lead to suicidality? Absolutely, yes, that's a great question. Um, First, can we just give a hand clap for that testimony because, yes, so powerful. And I really feel as though as you continue to pour into yourself, you're pouring into others, the more you tell your story. So we we definitely appreciate that. Um, Yeah, so so many things we were going through, Shanti, especially during the pandemic, uh, social injustice, so many things were taken away from us over the past few years. And if you're in this room today, if you're watching on the live, that means that you survived and you're continuing to survive. 
You're continuing to thrive, right? You're continuing to overcome. And so some of these things that we're overcoming is feeling as though we don't have the internal resources and the external resources in order to cope with whatever is coming our way. And so Manaleo, you gave a great example of that, feeling as though this is the only way out, right? Um, so a lot of times when we are having our rights taken away from us, when we're experiencing racial injustice, many of us do experience what we call that loss of control, leading to a sense of hopelessness. So hopelessness is essentially uh, having a, a set of negative beliefs about the outcome of this current situation. I can't see past the here and now. I can't see past the, I can't problem solve this thing. I can't get out of this thing. Therefore, the only way out is for me to take my own life. That is what hopelessness really looks like. And that is one of the most uh, one of the most predictable things as clinicians that we look for when we're assessing individuals for suicidal ideations because it does determine whether someone is more likely to actually engage in uh, planning and intending to actually take their own lives. But again, uh, experiencing that hopelessness and having that loss of control can definitely lead to a sense of suicidal ideation. And when we start to ruminate Right, so rumination is basically thinking about those thoughts over and over and over again. It certainly takes a toll on our mood, creating a cycle creating a cycle of continuing to feel bad about our situation, continuing to feel like there's no way out, and then that continues to exacerbate those suicidal thoughts and ideations. Thank you, Dr. Shonda. Monaleo, so you've been through so much. What do you think inspired you to really truly start sharing your story and being an advocate for mental health awareness? I feel like it was just needed and people needed that representation. I feel like in my um, in this industry, a lot of people, they want to present themselves in the best light. And I completely understand that they want to be the most polished version of themselves when they present themselves to the world, because oftentimes we're torn apart and scrutinized, criticized, everything under the sun. So I understand why artists do that. But I realized that what was the point? of having gone through all of this chaos and turmoil, if not to be able to turn it into something beautiful. And that was the reason why I was able to turn to music, so why not pay it forward and try to help other, other people and try to get people to understand where I was coming from and just to realize that there is power in solidarity. So knowing that somebody, even knowing that your favorite artist went through something that you are currently going through and they were able to make it through to the other side um, is powerful. And it's life changing. And that was something that helped me just watching my favorite artists do interviews and speak about their experiences. And that just made me feel like, OK, wow, first of all, I'm not the only person because when you're going through things, you just feel like, why me? You just feel very singled out. I don't know why we feel like we are the only people in the world who are like going through things, but that's just what it feels like. And it feels like the end of the world. But seeing my favorite artists talk about what they went through and then to see where they were currently and are now is just inspiring. So I just wanted to be able to do the same thing. And I know I have a very like um, a very powerful story to tell. And um, I just would be doing myself a disservice if I didn't share that because it's something that I'm still actively healing through. I think people also forget that as well. Like just because you become or just because you kind of move into a better position doesn't mean that all of what you went through goes away. And so you still have to currently heal and then new problems come up just on a bigger scale now. So now I'm still struggling with social anxiety in studio session. I had a studio session yesterday with um, really talented artists and I was just in there like struggling. 
And I had to pull him to the side and just tell him like, yo, this is crazy. And I have the worst anxiety you could think of. And I just want to tell you that so I can get it off my back and so I can get it out of my heart and out of my mind because I want this to work out between us. But I also have to let you know what is going on in my mind so you realize and understand where. And I feel like when you let people know what's going on with you, they have a little bit more grace and a little bit more empathy for you. And yes. if you don't tell anybody what you're going through, then you give you leave like the opportunity for people to control your own narrative. And that's something that really bothered me growing up. I was very quiet, very reserved. And people would label me um, stuck up or they would label me rude or mean. And I knew I was the complete opposite of that. And I just wasn't able to shake that like shake those labels and I ended up internalizing that thing of, am I mean? Am I rude? Am I? And that kind of built onto um, what I was already struggling with. So now I'm dealing with, well, nobody likes me. I'm a bad person. And I had not done anything to anyone. And I just couldn't understand, like, what is it? What is it? But like I said, when you talk about what you have gone through, people are able to give you the grace and the empathy that, and the sympathy, not the sympathy, excuse me, the empathy that you need um, sometimes when we're going through things, we just need a little bit of grace and we have yes. to be graceful with ourselves as well, but we have to talk about it so that we can give people the opportunity to be graceful with us. Ooh, you just said a whole word. Y'all can give it up for that. I can certainly relate because that's why Silence to Shame started. You know, for me, trying to normalize the conversation, share a lot about what I had gone through, my suicidal ideation, you know, all my family members and everything. And it does allow people to look at your situation and, and it helps them to normalize, right? It helps the community to normalize these conversations. So thank you again. You are truly a, a walking inspiration and we're so grateful to you. Dr. Shonda, social media seems like a one-stop shop for many young people when learning new information or finding new resources. But unfortunately, there's a trend of unlicensed individuals providing audiences with mental health information that may be inaccurate. We love you, TikTok, but it's a lot out there and you got to really like sift through all of that. How could this impact young people when it comes to seeking professional support and where should they start with seeking professional help? Yeah, so it's definitely a trend, for real. Um, I'm a lover of social media, but I do feel as though we, we have to learn how to take it in moderation. Um, and as the, you know, the, the saints used to say, you got to eat the meat and leave the bone, basically, right? So we can take the information in, we can take in whatever information is helpful to us, but it doesn't mean that we have to actually lean in and believe every single thing that we're listening to and everything that people put out there. Um, there were a few trends uh, on TikTok where people were diagnosing themselves with bipolar disorder and dis disassociative identity disorder and all these other diagnoses based on what they hear other people say, right? And it's totally okay with hearing other people's experience. It's totally okay with hearing how other people may have overcome diagnoses and things of that nature, but we shouldn't really be listening to that information and diagnosing ourselves with that. Right. It's OK to take the information to your your therapist, your psychologist or whoever, so they can help you through that. But it's not OK to diagnose ourselves because it can be so many other things out there and diagnoses overlap. Right. So one person on TikTok might say, oh, I have this specific diagnosis. But when you go to your psychiatrist or your psychologist or whatever, they might say, well, that's actually uh, correlates with this other diagnosis that you're meeting the criteria for. So it's really important to be careful of those things. And we should really be in, um, really cognizant of where we're getting our information from. So credible sources might include um, looking up information with things that end with like a .org or .gov. That's how we know these resources and the information that we are receiving is coming from 
from credible sources, peer-reviewed articles, and good research out there as opposed to relying on someone else's lived experience. Thank you, great information. Mona Leo, you're very open about your experiences and actively um, celebrate your mental health milestones. How did you find the strength, really, to be, to be transparent like with your family and about the things that you struggle with internally? Mm. and your peers you know it's crazy I'm not even the most transparent with my family because I feel like my family um they don't always understand and sometimes I don't know why it's like that like the people that are closest to you you feel like you just can't talk to them or you just feel it. it's not shame it's just there's a barrier between maybe maybe like I don't know there's a barrier still between me and my family I feel like I haven't I never was able to sit them down formally and like have a conversation with them. I think that's because with the early experiences that I have, like being hospitalized and like having my family come to the hospital and just like their faces were, they just were very like, I don't know. I don't, they were, they weren't pleased, but it wasn't like a concern. It was like a disappointment. Mm. And so I think, from those early experiences that kind of scarred me and made me say, you know what, I can't, you guys don't get it, right? Um, not, and that's not to just like say I'm like the black sheep or something like that, but I, cause I really do love and appreciate my family and they do support me. But like I said, I just, it, there's a barrier between us. So I think I found comfort in telling strangers Oddly enough, it's the weirdest thing. I have like this huge problem with oversharing, but I found comfort in telling strangers because I just find that they were more compassionate than the people that I had appointed to be there for me. So once I was able to speak about my experiences and um, have people say, I understand you, I see you, I hear you, um, I appreciate you, I value you, your presence, people that I, it was a person, I didn't even know this person, but there was like a random, like a forum, like a chat line. And it was like a bunch of people in there and we were just talking about our experiences and we were faceless and nameless, but we were just talking about like what we were struggling with currently. And somebody on there said, um, Leo, don't go. Hmm. They said, Leo, don't go because I will miss you. And I said, you, you will miss me. You don't even know me. Thank you. But they were so sincere and so genuine. And just hearing that was like all the comfort that I needed. And it's just, people just need to hear that you would miss them. And it could not be anybody that, because I miss people who I never met. I miss Aaliyah. I never met her. I miss Whitney Houston. I miss Michael Jackson. I never met them. But it's people that need to hear that they're appreciated and that they're valued and that they're loved, that they deserve to be here because you just never know what somebody is going through. So for somebody to say that they would miss me, a complete stranger, that was like, all the peace that I needed. And again, there is power and solidarity. So I know when I tell my story to people, whether they know me from a hole in a wall or not, um, we have a moment there. Like we're, we're kind of here with it and we just see each other as human beings, not as figures or not as social media at names or not as artist names. We see each other as a human being. And that's something that I really 
am able to thrive off of just like that human interaction. Because like how we say with social media is like we just interact with people via social media and we really lose like who we are as human beings. And so just talking to people directly and like changing people's lives and allowing them to be able to say something to me that would change my life. That's what I thrive off of. I I just want to honor what you just said because it's such a powerful moment of us just being human with one another. A total stranger saying, I'll miss you. And I can relate to that. And when I thought about taking my own life, the one thing I kept thinking about was my family and how they would miss me. And I would do the same thing to them that my dad did to us. I didn't want to do that to my siblings. And or you got me up here emotional, but it's, it's real talk. And I think our community needs to hear more of this. That's why I hope, you know, next year this thing can be worldwide, you know, and center stage and you have to keep sharing your story and normalizing this conversation. I do want to remind you all that there are note cards on the table. If you do have questions, we'll have a few minutes for questions um, before this panel ends. And if you're watching online, hello, everyone watching virtually again, please leave your questions in the comment section. That was beautiful. Um, I want to go to you next, Dr. Shonda. Can you talk about how hard it can be for anyone, especially students, to open up and ask for help if they are stressed out or depressed? And how can students recognize the signs and symptoms of a mental health crisis and traumatic stress? Yeah, so I really feel as though in our community, we have normalized silencing pain. We've normalized silencing pain. And that's That's why- hashtag. And so that's why I love this initiative because the the name of it, silencing the shame, we're we're basically putting to death the shame associated with telling our story. And so when we have these moments of silencing our pain, we're essentially invalidating every feeling that we've experienced, right? And so even thinking about like from our ancestral trauma, we we were exposed in the enslaved period to to pain and having to continue to work and having to continue to persevere beyond what we were physically experiencing, beyond what we were emotionally experiencing. And because we pass those same traits down from generation to generation, we tell our children, stop crying before I give you something to cry about. We tell our children to man up. You're not supposed to cry like that. And we wonder why our kids have problems with talking about the way they're feeling. When we silence their pain, we're validating the fact that we don't care about what it is that they're experiencing. We're, we're we're, We're solidifying that. We're reinforcing the idea that it's not okay to share. That's why it's important for us to continue to to really deconstruct some of these ideologies that we were taught during uh, centuries ago, during the enslaved period. Letting our children know, letting our, our um, you know, students and whoever you're working with, letting these people know, I want to hear about what you're feeling, mm-hmm. right? I work with all adolescents all day, every day. How you feeling today? Good. That's not an answer. Emotionally, give me an emotion. Identify an emotion, right? So get them to actually talk about these things. And so it's really important for us to dismantle these beliefs and uh, about communicating our emotions. And also in terms of recognizing the second part of the question, uh, looking at things like sadness, disruptions in our mood, uh, feeling overwhelmed, feeling as though uh, feeling irritable, right? Oftentimes we overlook irritability and anger as a sign of depression, but that's literally one of the hallmark signs. Kids and teenagers don't just lash out for no reason. 
So it's really important for us not to just label them as just being bad, but to really assess what's going on. Also looking at symptoms like feeling uh, worthless. My life is worthless. I have nothing going on. Other people don't like me. Looking at things like withdrawal. If you find that the, the students that you're working with or whoever, if they're tending to withdraw and not associate anymore, that's obviously a shift in what's happening internally. Begin to assess that. Mm. And also we wanna look at blatant things that they might say, right? So things like, I want to kill myself, or I, I don't wanna be here anymore, or I wish I can go to sleep and not wake up. We call those passive suicidal thoughts. And so it's really important for us to know how to look out for that, to identify it, and further assess if we need to. Wonderful, wonderful tips. Yes, thank you so much. These young women are so wise beyond their years. I'm just so impressed, and we're just truly grateful that you all are pouring into our in-person and virtual audience today. Thank you again. Thank you. Mona Leo, celebrating recovery is an ongoing process, right? How do you celebrate your recovery daily? And what advice would you offer to those beginning their recovery journey? So daily, I have these things. I'm, I'm like a person. I have to have like constant reminders around me or else I will lose track of what I have going on. So um, I have just things everywhere like apps that remind me that I'm enough and that I'm loved and I have people around me who I trust and have appointed to be a part of my team but also again just being very vocal with them about what I struggle with so that they and just telling them also um, things that they can identify with so if they see me like being reclusive or if they see me acting then they will come through and reassure me and save the day essentially um, but daily I'm able to celebrate feel like just taking a moment throughout the day, whatever the schedule is, I don't care if it's packed from like sun up to sundown. I always take a moment to myself to just appreciate what I have going on and be able to um, remind myself to be present and really live in the moment because you don't realize that the moment has passed until it's passed. And you can never get that moment back. And what we don't understand and realize that we are creating um, like we're creating our life actively. So 10, 20 years from now, we're going to look back now and be like, wow, I was doing this and I was doing that. And we're going to reminisce and be nostalgic and miss this time when we had all the time in the world to appreciate the current time. So I always take a moment to myself and just monthly, I do these like, um, um, monthly celebrations for like, um, my suicide attempts, like when my last suicide attempt was. And so um, we're coming up on two years, whoop, whoop. <laughs> we're coming up on two years and I can, I can um, confidently say I will never do anything like that again. I will never, I'm developing this love for myself that's so powerful, nobody can take it away. And so I'm, I have to celebrate myself because if not me, then who will? And there are people. Say that around, again. There are people around you who will celebrate you, but at the end of the day, if those people are not there, you have to be able to sustain yourself. And so I have again just self-reassuring things that I set up in my life, and then just like honoring my younger self, like all of the things that I felt like I wasn't able to have when I was younger, I give that to myself now that I'm able to. And that, and even if it's in small doses, like I really love Hello Kitty. So my whole house is Hello Kitty in pink and I love it. <laughs> and it helps me, it's just, it's very comforting to me because it's just like, 
And I just have these moments where I just cry to myself, like, I can't believe this is what I set up for myself because I took it upon myself to believe in my craft and believe in who I was. And I stepped into that. And as a result, I'm able to sustain myself and I create this very beautiful life around me. And I just, some days I really can't believe it because I went so many years just like abusing myself and allowing abuse from other people around me and never standing up for myself and just letting people put these labels on me and letting people disrespect me, whatever it was. And so now that I'm older and I'm an adult, I can just, I look back on those times and I do, again, like I said, I'm a work in progress, so I'm still healing from those things, but I'm able to smile and be grateful and just be thankful that I'm in the position that I'm in. So it's, it's essential for me to celebrate. What was the question? My bad. You, you got it, girl. You got it. <laughs> you got it. Talking about how you celebrate your, your recovery and you are doing that every single day. You have to do what works for you. Right? People come over to your house. Why you got that over there? Why you just not, don't, you don't worry about what I'm doing, Shawty. Like, it's okay. I live in my own oasis, right? If you come to my house in the fall, it's gonna be fall decor everywhere. Everybody knows in November, the second week, my Christmas decorations are going up. Don't worry, it's what I do for my own mental wellness, right? So do what you do, girl, you're pink and all. It's a beautiful exactly. thing. We have about 10 minutes left, so if you do have a couple quick questions, you know, raise your hand and we'll pick up your cards and see if we can get a couple questions in before the end. I just wanna shout out Young Middle School, Clayton County Schools, the Hawks are in the building, so thank you for all the community folks that are out here supporting. Ooh. Dr. Shonda, what guidance can you offer to individuals working or supporting young people? And what guidance can you offer young people when they wanna check in with one of their peers, which is a great question. Yes, yes, that is a great question because as we know, especially in the black community, there is an increase in teenagers who are taking their lives. So we do have to equip ourselves with knowing how to respond. But the first thing we wanna do is always validate, right? So when a teen or a child comes to you and lets you know that they're having thoughts of suicide or wanting to harm themselves, thank them for letting you know, right? It's important not to overreact as well. Oftentimes, you know, I'm talking to parents and guardians and teachers or what have you, and they get so overworked by the thoughts that these children are bringing to them. However, think about it. If you were a kid and you were bringing these thoughts to an adult and they tended to overreact, would you come to them again? Not in the future, probably not, right? So it's really important to make sure that we're not overreacting and we're holding safe spaces for when children and adolescents do come to us with these really um, intense thoughts. And we also wanna make sure that we're letting them know that we care about their, how they're feeling. That increases the likelihood of them continuing to share and not internalizing these thoughts and these emotions that they're having. Also, if you notice that they are talking about a plan and intent, you wanna make sure that that person gets the help that they need. That might include a higher level of care. So having them assessed by some sort of crisis response center or um, what is the national hotline for suicide? Perfect, 988. So make sure y'all remember that and whatever kids y'all are talking to and working with, make sure they know it as well. Because if the plan and intent is in place, you want to make sure that we're intervening at that time. Awesome. So now we want to open up for any questions. Do we have a few questions? Yep. Sorry, I know our staff is limited. Let me just grab this from you. Thank you, okay. How do we address the mis 
education of mental health and suicide prevention in black families and churches. And I know you've done a lot um, within the church, Dr. Shonda. Yes. Oh, my goodness. That's such an amazing question. So when talking about suicide in the church, especially, um, you know, I always like to bring it back to the text because, you know, we always say, or at least in the in the past, they were say, like, if I have thoughts of suicide, I'm not a child of God or it's not godly. I'm not a saint. But what about Elijah in the Bible? Right. So Elijah talked about how he wanted his his life to be taken from him. So I always try to reframe it in that sense of uh, talking about it from a spiritual context so that that's more buy-in from the audience that I'm talking to and also normalizing it. Suicide and suicidal ideation has no respect to person. Doesn't matter if you're black, white, Jew, Christian, Gentile, Islamic, it, it doesn't matter who you are, but it's important to make sure that we tend to normalize the conversation and we're spreading correct information as opposed to leaning on our ideologies about what we think suicide is. Thank you. And, and the way you do is also just really encourage these churches to start doing programming right within the churches. Because one of the things, you know, shout out to my church, Ebenezer Baptist Church, American Freedom Church. Dr. Warnock, when you know, he was there when I had my suicidal ideation and he allowed me to share my story in the pulpit. As a result, they start having Silence to Shame Sundays. Now it's just Mental Health Sunday, but you know, you gotta be the change that you wanna be. So if you are in a faith-based congregation or even within your schools, you know, get somebody like a Mona Leo. They wanna pay all these artists to come do performances, but you need to pay artists yes. to come talk and share their stories and normalize these conversations. So we also have to encourage, and maybe we do, you know, volunteer on that committee. I know we all got 11 million things going on, but sometimes, <laughs> yep. you know, we are to be of service to others. And if you wanna see those changes, you have to bring those changes about and in your own respective communities. Next question, how do you increase self-worth or value from an early age? And I'll let you take that, Mona Leo. And then we're gonna have our closing remarks. Um, it's important if, if you don't have people around you um, to instill that in you, that you instill it in yourself and I know we talk about social media and how people like to self-diagnose themselves, but there are also a lot of things that social media has to offer that I feel like is valuable. Um, self-care routines. I'm very adamant about my self-care routine. I'm very like, I, I need my bath after a flight. I need my bath. I need my shower. I need my bath bombs. I need a massage. I need the whole thing. And I make sure I take time out of my day to do that for myself um, because I deserve it. And it's like, even if I don't do, even if I haven't worked at all, I feel like I'm worthy and I feel like I'm deserving. So, but at a young age, I feel like it's just important to con continuously remind yourself um, of all the things that you love about yourself. Cause I feel like a lot of people tend to pick you apart, especially when you're developing and you are in your developmental stage and you are making mistakes and you are dropping the ball multiple times. Um, people just point out what's wrong all the time. So feel like it's important to just point out what you love in yourself and then really play on that and have your own back. If nobody, if you, if it's you against a hundred thousand people, you need to be able to stand on your two feet and, and stand your ground and stand up for yourself and stand on what you believe in and stand on your morals and just stand up and show up rather for yourself. I think the late great Tupac said, it's just me against the world. Sometimes Hello. you just gotta do what you gotta do. <laughs> Hello, somebody. Yes, we got time for one more quick question. Did anyone else have a question before we go to closing remarks? Okay, so then we're gonna go ahead with closing remarks. I'd love to give you, Dr. Shonda, a chance to give us some parting words of wisdom. 
And again, these ladies came from out of town. They are not Atlanta-based, so we're truly grateful for them both being here today. Let people know how they can stay in touch and how they can support the work that you do. Yeah, so I'm just going to leave y'all with a quote. If we don't take time for our wellness, then we will be forced to take time for our sickness. We have to make sure that we are prioritizing wellness every single day. I love the examples that you provided. Um, for me, prayer and workout is my self-care. I have to make sure I'm doing it every day. Otherwise, my day is off. So uh, make sure you're incorporating that into your routine. You guys can find me on Instagram at paging.doctor.shonda, as well as uh, my, my website, www.mindsoftheculture.org, uh, which is my nonprofit associated with Black Mental Health. And yeah, we'd we'll love to stay connected. And thank you, Shanti. Oh, absolutely. Um, let me see. Let me make this meaningful. Hold on. Okay. If you ever wake up one day and decide that maybe this is the day that you don't want to be here anymore, um, I encourage you to stay one more day, right? Mm -hmm. And get to the next day and then see how you're feeling. And if you still feel the same way, then stay another day. And if you still feel the same way, stay another day and continue to stay days until you don't feel like that anymore because we would miss you. And that's my closing. Thank you. And, and how you can, can we find follow me, you? You can follow me on Instagram, TikTok, Twitter, um, at the Mona Leo. That's T-H-E-M-O-N-A-L-E-O. <laughs> yes. And I would just like to end by saying, you know, when I was dealing with my suicidal ideation, uh, it wasn't that I wanted to die. Mm. I really didn't. Mm. I just wanted the pain to go away. Come on now. So when someone comes to you within your family or students that you're working with, like you said, you know, you got to allow them, right, to talk about the pain, right? We don't want to discredit someone's pain. And I know oftentimes when we talk about youth and young adults, we're like, oh, they just being this or they just being that. No, something actually may be wrong. So you have to give people more grace. So I leave you with grace. I leave you with the word discernment. Right, as an, a, a parent, you have to be able to discern when something is really going on. But it's better to listen first, and then you can discern if they just being a brat or if something is really going on. Right. Also, vulnerability is a key word, and boundaries. You know, as as parents, as caregivers, as leaders, as educators, as leaders in the community, um, we have to know that boundaries are important for us. Right, as well as the people that we work with. So give yourself some grace. Set some boundaries in your life and be open to vulnerability. Let's give it up again for these ladies. Thank you so much. <laughs>